three readings this morning and the first one is a familiar one it's John 19 verses 16 to 27 then they delivered him to them to be crucified so they took Jesus and they led him away and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of the skull which is in Hebrew called Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the centre. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, for the cut, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did all these things. Now there stood by the cross, Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Now, our second reading comes from Colossians chapter 2. go verses 8 to 15 see to it then that no one enslaves you by means of the worthless deceit of human wisdom which comes from the teachings handed down by human beings and from the ruling spirits of the universe and not from christ for the full content of divine nature lives in christ in his humanity, and you have been given full life in union with him. He is supreme over every spiritual ruler and authority. In union with Christ, you were circumcised, not with a circumcision that was made by human beings, but with the circumcision made by Christ, which consists of being freed from the power of this sinful self. For when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. And in baptism, you were also raised with Christ through your faith in the active power of God, who also raised him from the dead. You were at one time spiritually dead in your sins, and because you were Gentiles without the law. But God has now brought you to life in Christ. God forgave us all our sins. He cancelled 
the unfavourable record of our debts with its binding rules and did away with it completely by nailing it to the cross. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. And finally, in our final reading is in Isaiah, and that's the whole of the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the entire temple. Around him, flaming creatures were standing, each of which had six wings. Each creature covered its face with two wings and its body with two, and it used the other two for flying. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, 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 the Lord Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world. And the sound of their voices made the foundations of the temple shake, and the temple itself was filled with smoke. And I said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes from my lips is sinful. And I live among a, among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Then one of the creatures flew down to me, carrying a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with the burning coal and he said, this has now touched your lips and your guilt is gone and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? And I answered, I will go, send me. So he told me to go and give the people this message. No matter how much you listen, you will not understand. No matter how much you look, you will not know what, it, what is happening. Then he said to me, make the minds of these people dull, their ears deaf, their eyes blind, so that they cannot see or hear or understand. For if they did, they might turn to me and be healed. And I asked, how long will it be like this, Lord? And he answered, until the cities are ruined and empty, until the houses are uninhabited until the land itself is a desolate wasteland. I will send the people far away and make the whole land desolate. Even if one person out of 10 remains in the land, he too will be destroyed. He will be like the stump of an oak tree that has been cut down. The stump represents a new beginning for God's people. Amen. Morning, children of God. <clears throat> Welcome to our visitors this morning from Bingra. It's a long way to come to church. Thank you for sharing um, in our worship this morning. And thank you for coming all that way. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, that you will open our hearts, that you will teach us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'll speak for me, that my voice will um, last the distance. And Lord, I pray that I will 
it would not be me, but your words be spoken and be speaking to the people here, Lord, for us, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember in the last 20 years or so, Armadale was having major issues with the water. You'd pour a glass and um, it'd come out cloudy. It sort of didn't really have floaties in it, but you sort of look at it and you go, do I need to drink that? But I need to drink it because I'm thirsty. Um, it didn't have actually a, a taste or a flavor. It just come out of the tap so aerated that it was just cloud. One day, Julie decided to play a trick on me because I am so gullible. And she poured a glass of water, which at that stage was clear, put a drop of lemon cordial in it, stirred it and said, oh, look at the water. I looked at it. Gee, that's really bad today. And I smelt it. Didn't have a smell. And I tasted it. I go, tastes the same as what it always does with it cloudy. And I thought, wow, this is really bad. And I believed what was going on. Julie couldn't contain herself any longer and she let the cat out of the bag saying what she'd done. And I felt about this big. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been gullible or easily led and you've believed what has been going on, Julie's quite good at um, tricking me. <laughs> But if we look at verse 8 in our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 2, Paul warns the Colossians to make sure that they are not taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, this is the first clue in the letter that the Colossians, the Colossian church actually faced outside danger. Unlike the Galatians, They were playing with fire and Paul was concerned for the Galatians, but he wasn't concerned for the Colossians. But he knew that he had to warn them to be careful not to be hijacked and not to be fooled by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, when you think of philosophy, you sort of think of wisdom and a whole range of stuff. But in the ancient world, Philosophy meant a lot more than what it does now. It referred to, it could refer to all sorts of groups or tendencies or uh, points of views, including magical practices. And this broad meaning of the term and the fact that Paul describes a philosophy in terms of religious practices, like eating and drinking and observing festivals and Sabbaths, it sort of gives us an idea that some people use religion as a philosophy. Paul draws several contrasts between the gospel and this philosophy. The gospel of the word is truth. If you look back to um, chapter 1 in Colossians, verse 5 and 6, the faith and love, the spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven 
and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. The philosophy is deception. The second point he brings out, Christ rescues and liberates hostages. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. The philosophy that people were spreading takes the gullible captive, makes them slaves of error, and yanks them back into the dominion of darkness. Now, Paul goes on to describe the philosophy in, in, in verse 8 with depends on phrases. Paul has no intention of, of revealing the, uh, the full description of this philosophy, but he only intends to stress the glories that the Colossians already possess in Christ so that they can see how much the philosophy falls short. The first point he brings out is the philosophy depends on human tradition. In Paul's world, ancient tradition ensured the excellence and sanctity of knowledge. Do you remember that, um, that statue or the person sort of sitting like this? I can't remember the fellow's name. I thought it was Aristotle, but I looked that up and it, the statues had nothing to do with him. So does anybody know his name? The fellow who's sort of contemplating? Rodin. Who? Rodin? Rodin. Okay. I didn't know that name. So back in the olden days, in Paul's time, if the tradition was old, then it was good. And was not lightly to be dismissed. Nowadays, we think newer is better more improved and we tend to throw out the old. Now, there's nothing wrong with human traditions, but some of them need a little bit more research. So Paul, however, discredits the philosophy as a tradition that is created by man or by humans and contrasts with the divine revelation that the Colossians have received in Christ. If you look up chapter 2, verse 6 of Colossians, Paul writes that they have received Christ Jesus as Lord. So then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. The contrast is clear. The philosophy is man-made. The Colossians did not receive a tradition created by humans but they received a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point Paul points out is that philosophy depends on the elemental spirits of the world or the basic principles of the world. The term elemental spirits of the world does not reflect some important feature of the opponent's teachings, but derives from Paul's derisive appraisal of the philosophy. He uses this term to discredit a philosophy that kidnaps, that is empty and deceptive and depends on human tradition. 
just as the key word in the in the phrase is the the tradition of men. The key word in this phrase is is of the world, the tradition of the world. But Paul debunks this philosophy as belonging to the material spheres created by Christ, but now alienated from God and in need of redemption and reconciling. The philosophy belongs to the domain of flesh, sin, and death, where demonic powers still have an influence. The third point Paul raises is he characterizes the philosophy as devoid of truth. This opinion reflects Paul's deep conviction that all Christless teaching is empty at its core. As something hollow, the philosophy cannot fill anyone except with more emptiness. By contrast, the Colossians and us receive the word of God in its fullness. If you look at chapter 1, verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Have the full riches of complete understanding in Christ. And then if you look at, uh, look at chapter 2, verse 2, he says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 9, he says, okay, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives and has been given in fullness of Christ. Then if you go to, to chapter 2, verse 10, he says, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Now, to counter the attraction of the philosophy, Paul reiterates in, in verse 9 of chapter 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form with what he said in verse in chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fulfill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, in the Old Testament, the fullness of God refers to God's presence, as Zanita read in Isaiah. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 6, um, Look at verse 3, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The basic affirmation of Christianity is that God was fully present in Jesus. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. So what Paul is saying is that in Christ, all the fullness lives in solid reality. The reality of the indwelling of God in Jesus, the man, is not a shadow reality or virtual reality. It is something solid 
genuine and true. Paul's main point, however, is that you have been fulfilled in him. You have been given fullness in Christ. If you look at verse 10 in chapter 2 of Colossians, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So since Christ is a fulfillment of God and believers are in him, they all have the fullness human beings can ever possess. Did you hear that? Since Christ is the fulfillment of God in believers and believers are in him, they have the, all the fullness human beings can ever possess. Now, the Corinthians, they seem to be a boastful lot. And they, be, they face the danger of becoming puffed up by a belief that they had already arrived in Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8, he said, already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. So Paul tried to show the Corinthians that they were full of themselves instead of full of Christ. But the opposite was true of the Colossians. If you look down to uh, verse 18, which will take away a little bit of Jared's thunder next time he preaches, um, it says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about the, what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. So apparently they, they were they were apparently in more danger of being, of being deflated. That's the Colossians. The opponents tried to disillusion them that the fullness they yearned for was unattainable either through Christ or through Christ alone. And Paul tells them that they have all the completeness that they need in Christ and do not need to look anywhere else. That's a pretty amazing promise that we have everything we need in Christ. We don't have to look elsewhere to anything that the world offers. The Colossians have been filled in Christ and have also received a divine circumcision in him. Paul's mention of the circumcision of Christ is probably prompted by the opponent's claim that the Gentile Christians in Colossae lacked the crucial marker that would identify them as God's people. Now, we know for the Jews that circumcision uh, meant that one was incorporated into the people of God and a beneficiary of the covenant promises to Abraham. It signaled inclusion into God's chosen nation. It was the fundamental identity badge that the Jews had for membership in God's people. And in essence, it was their confession of faith, as well as an act of obedience to God's holy law. Romans 2, 25 to 29. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then 
if you, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, sorry, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So Paul argues that circumcision is a mean, meaningless sign unless it signifies a cleansed heart. And he goes on to argue that the cleansed heart can only come from Christ. True circumcision has nothing to do with slicing off a piece of flesh from the body. It is something related to Christ and given by God. So what has God done for us? Paul balances Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by specifying three things that God has accomplished in Christ. The first one is, we are dead, we were dead in our sins. God made us alive with or in Christ. Colossians 2.13, when you are dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Okay, so the union with Christ in his death means that the Gentiles' physical uncircumcision no longer signifies their present spiritual death and future condemnation. The second thing that Paul raises is the written code that was against us. God cancelled. If you look at chapter 2, verse 14, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So all our sins have been nailed to the cross. And then he points out that having stripped the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of the, of the rituals and the traditions. Look at verse. Did, did I cover the, um, the, the verse in verse 14? Yeah, I did. Sorry. I just lost my place there for a bit. So verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. So being united in Christ guarantees that the slate of accusations against us has been wiped clean and God promises freedom from the death-dealing powers whom Christ has vanquished. So the emphasis falls on what God in Christ has done, which makes any human attempt to achieve those powers through rituals and self-chastisement ridiculous. 
God's forgiveness in Christ gives us a new life. And here Paul switches from you to us. So he switches from when you were dead to us, he forgave us. Paul is acutely conscious that God did not simply forgive the Gentiles with their long history of sinfulness and idolatry. But God also forgave the Jews with their long history of rebellion and sinfulness. I've been reading through uh, the Bible chronologically and I'm going through um, Kings and Chronicles and, you know, sort of going backwards and forwards and seeing all the different Kings. And it says that, that this particular King honoured God, but he didn't fully take down the, 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 uh, the high places and the, and the Asherah poles and stuff. And how many times did the Israelites come back to God, then reject him, then come back to God and reject him, and come back to God and reject him? Paul uses a commercial image to describe this forgiveness. He says, God cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. We all know the phrase IOU which is basically a charge that acknowledges the obligation to pay a debt and is signed by the debtor. Both Jew and Gentile come under the curse of the law, the death sentence pronounced on those who violate its ordinances. Our breach of promise and our bankruptcy, however, are met by the riches of God's mercy and faithfulness. Did you notice how Paul describes God's mercy on sinners? God nailed the incriminating list of our unpaid debts to the cross. The IOU that we signed exacted a penalty for non-payment. The penalty for that payment was death. The note was not simply torn up and thrown away. The penalty was exacted in Christ's death. The metaphor nail, of nailing it to the cross alludes to the practice of placing the, um, the charge above the criminal who was on the cross. And if you go back to that passage that Anita read in John chapter 19, it said, Paul, uh, sorry, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read, read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Don't get me to change it now. The difference is that the guilty parties were not nailed to the cross with it, only Christ. Christ stood in our place, taking our sin upon himself and taking away our guilt. In return, we take away his righteousness. Martin Luther exclaimed, 
Your, you, Christ, are my sin and my curse. Or rather, I am your sin, your curse, your death, your wrath of God, your hell. You are my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, and my heaven. If we die with Christ, who took the verdict of condemnation against us, then our debt has been paid in full. Those who are in Christ are no longer in default. This passage combines a first warning to the Colossians about the hollow and deceptive philosophy they were facing with a forceful reminder of what they have received through Christ when they were baptised in him. And Paul raises three vital issues in this passage. He stresses the all-sufficiency all of Christ for our salvation. We can't do it on our own. His death and resurrection are definitive means by which God has reconciled the world and Christians who have been baptised into that death will be raised from death with him. We need no other mediator except Christ. The second point. He emphasizes that God has provided Christians complete forgiveness and fullness in Christ. All charges against us were eradicated by his sacrificial death. We can only have forgiveness in Christ and we need no other fullness except the fullness given us in Christ. And thirdly, he affirms that God through Christ's cross and resurrection has overcome all the threatening powers that have come against us. We need no other power except the power of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, for the message that you've given us today, for the reminder that we don't need any other mediator we don't need any other fullness. We don't need any other power. All we need, Lord, is you. Thank you, Lord, that you have, you have died for each one of us and have saved us. And I pray that as we look into your word a little bit later, that you'll, you'll teach us and guide us and remind us of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.